0: Somebody in here just joked about WWE, but one of the things we Googled or put into YouTube was WWE Baptism. And we also put in there Baptism Gone Wrong, and we put in there Baptism Fail. And I will tell you that I'm kind of proud of Hunter and myself. Because you can get on and you can find the videos that are available there. And I feel like we both showed remarkable restraint in the videos we did not include, that we wanted to include. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you what they were, but I'm just telling you there were some videos that made us laugh way harder than any of those. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, eh, we we'll probably ought to leave that one off for church and just let people look at that on their own. So now you're curious. You're going to get on your phone and look during... During the lesson here, so we're talking about the ordinances, and we're talking about baptism, and we're talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, our goal is to think about these two topics and just to listen to what the Bible has to say about them um, across Christian denominations and traditions and faith streams uh, within just broad Christendom. There's lots of different ideas and. As I prepared this, I I kept trying to stay on focus as much as I could and not let it become like a bash session where we just talk about how dumb everyone else is and how they do it wrong, but where we just try to focus most of our time on what the Bible has to say and and how that impacts us. So just a few vocabulary words before we start. Uh, These are not on your notes, but you may want to jot them down, may not, that's up to you. Uh, I want you to think about the word sacrament and ordinance. Okay? Sacrament and ordinance. Those are two terms that you're going to hear thrown around when you start to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of them are okay to use, but just a little bit of history. The older term would be sacrament, and it comes from the Latin word. I'm not up on my Latin, so I'll read it to you. Sacramentum. And originally, that word, sacramentum, described the, the oath of loyalty that a Roman soldier would take to his legion or his unit or his commander. So you kind of see the idea between how they carried that over into the quote-unquote sacraments. Meaning, this is like pledging your allegiance almost. In a military context, it's to your unit. But in the Christian context, it's pledging your allegiance to Jesus in a sense. And you can understand why they would apply that term to baptism and to the Lord's Supper. The problem with that term is that over time, over hundreds and hundreds of years of history the Roman Catholic Church began to teach that sinful people received grace through the sacraments, through the doing of the sacraments. And they almost completely detached the doing of the sacraments from faith, so that it really didn't matter who was administering the sacraments, or it really didn't matter the condition of your heart when you took the sacraments. Just doing them brought grace into your life or conveyed grace into your life and in addition to baptism in the Lord's Supper the Roman Catholic Church over many years added to the list of quote-unquote sacraments and so to those original two they added confirmation penance marriage ordination and extreme unction all under this umbrella of the sacraments where participating in them brings grace into your life so 500 years ago, in the Protestant Reformation, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin stood up and said, look, it's not just the doing of the act that gets you to, uh, into God's good graces or that helps you to receive or conveys this grace into your life, but it's faith alone in Christ alone. That's how you receive God's grace. It doesn't come through doing an act, but it comes through faith In Jesus, and so they began to use this word ordinance, just to sort of make a distinction. You'll hear people use both terms today. Uh, We're not gonna witch hunt you if you call them sacraments, but just because of the history of how the terms have been used, my preference would be to call them ordinances. So, hints on your sheet, tonight we're talking about ordinances. As I studied, a lot of the authors I read talked about the ordinances as signs and seals. Signs and seals. And the best way I can explain to you what they were trying to convey with these two terms is to say, when you get married, you put a ring on your finger, traditionally, right? The ring itself does not make you married, but it points to the fact that you are married. It's a sign of that. It's a seal of that. It's a visible, tangible reminder of that. And that's sort of what some of these authors are trying to convey when they talk about the sign or the seal of the Lord's Supper and baptism, they're saying doing the act is not what makes you a Christian, but doing the act is a sign that you are a Christian. It's something that Christians participate in. And so you'll hear these terms thrown around, sacraments and ordinances, signs and seals. Let's jump to the scripture and just ask, what do we need to know? What do we need to know about the ordinances? And we'll start with a big picture, just a front to back of the Bible overview comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Okay? In the Old Covenant, circumcision marked the people of God, and the Passover was the regular celebration of God saving his people. When you fill those blanks in, I know there was a Day of Atonement, and that was an annual thing, and I know there were other feasts and festivals that they celebrated regularly, but Passover was really at the heart. It was this first festival, uh, this first celebration, remembering when the people became a people, when they came out of Egypt. And so it really lies at the beginning uh, of this idea that God has saved his people and they're going to remember that somehow. So it's circumcision and the Passover, and the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, it's baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, one is this picture that God has done it, and one is this other ongoing reminder of what God has done. So look in the Bible, and let's just look at Exodus 12. We'll just read a few verses. We won't read the whole chapter Exodus 12, let's read beginning in verse 43. Exodus twelve forty three. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. It's only for you, only for you. Every slave that is brought for money may eat of it it after you have circumcised him, meaning after he's been marked out as one of my people. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it, He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So you see both of those ideas connected there. Circumcision marks you out as one of God's people. And the Passover is to be this perpetual reminder of what God has done to save his people. And the new covenant parallel to that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we're going to talk first about baptism and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. Okay, what is baptism? The classic Baptist definition is baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. It's the immersion of a believer in water. And we'll break that down and talk about the, the parts of that and why we believe those parts. First of all, let's talk about the believer part. Baptism is for believers. Maybe you've heard people use the phrase believer's baptism. Okay, Here's a quote from one of my favorites, John Dagg. You've heard of him before in this series. Those only are proper subjects of baptism who repent of sin and believe in Christ. A little bit Archaic in the way he puts that sentence together, but you get the idea. The only people that ought to be baptized are those who repent of sin and who believe in Christ. Why would Baptists insist on that? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, okay? Number one, the baptism stories in Acts describe the baptism of people who repent of sin and believe in Jesus. Like when you read through the book of Acts and you're looking at who gets baptized... The only people you read about getting baptized are those who are turning away from sin and believing in Jesus. And I just want to put your mind at a little bit of ease that when you read through Acts, sometimes you read about people repenting and believing. Sometimes you read about them repenting and being baptized. That doesn't mean they didn't believe also. It's just what's mentioned in that passage. Sometimes it talks about believing in being baptized. Sometimes it may talk about only one of those things. But when you read through the book of Acts, you realize all three of those things go together and you can't really separate them. Repentance and faith and baptism, they all went together. And let's just look at a couple of examples of that. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 38. Peter just preached. The crowd is cut to the heart. They say, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. So you see two of those things connected repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is the foundation of what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in our study on Philippians. And you see it here in Acts 16, the connection between baptism and repentance and faith. Acts 16 verse 14 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized... She and all her household, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So God opens her heart so that she can repent of her sins and believe the gospel, and she's baptized. Stay in chapter 16 and look at verse 33. This is the jailer. It says, He took them that same hour of the night. He washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. And then if you back up to verse 31... The jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved all your household. What you need to do is believe. And then immediately they follow that up with baptism. So you see these things connected. Repentance and faith and baptism. Now one little side note, not on your notes. As we read in Acts 16, you read about these household baptisms. And our Catholic friends and our Presbyterian friends and our Methodist friends would look at those passages and say, Look, the whole household was baptized. Baptism is for an entire family. All the people in this household were baptized. So today, if a family is coming to our church, we're going to baptize the entire household. And they think that's a sound argument for why it's right or acceptable or okay or good to baptize infants. And our response to that would be, well, it does make a connection pretty consistently through Acts between repentance, faith, and baptism. So it could be that when Luke says the household was baptized, what he means is all of those who repented and believed were baptized because those things seem to really go together. You could also look at that and say, it's entirely possible that Lydia didn't have any infants in her house. It's entirely possible that the Philippian jailer had grown children. Just because everyone under his roof got baptized is not really a slam-dunk argument to say we should then baptize babies. So as Baptists were saying... We are baptizing those who repent of sin and believe in Jesus. And a second reason we do that is listed on your outline. The meaning of baptism suggests that only those who have begun to follow Christ ought to be baptized. Like, that's the meaning of baptism. And you see that in Galatians chapter 3. You can turn to Galatians 3, and you can look at verse 27, where Paul says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Being baptized into Christ is putting on Christ. And we put Christ on through repentance and believing in him, having faith in him. And so Baptists have said historically, we're going to baptize believers. Now let's talk about that first word you filled in, immersion. Okay, The proper mode of baptism is immersion. You say, well, what are the other modes? Well, some denominations sprinkle. Some denominations pour. Take water and pour it over your head. Some denominations or some, uh, I don't know about denominations, but I say I've heard of some non-denominational churches that wipe. They take water and wipe it across your forehead, and they call that your baptism. So why do we insist that the proper mode is immersion? Several reasons. Number one, the Greek word baptizo means to dip or to submerge or to immerse. That's what the word actually means. You find the exact same word, used by ancient authors to describe ships in battle being sunk. Like they blow a hole in the side of the ship and the ship gets baptized. It goes under the water. doesn't mean that they're sprinkling water on it or pouring water over the top of it. The idea is it's underneath the water, it's down. It's the exact same word used. And just a little interesting piece of history. When the Bible was being translated into English for the very first time, Rewind way back in history. They're translating the Bible into English. Almost all, almost all of the Christians in Europe were baptizing by sprinkling. That's how they did it. And We can talk about how they got to that point on another lesson. But they're all practicing baptism by sprinkling infants. They're translating the Bible. They come to this word baptizo. And the obvious translation is... To dip, or to immerse, or to dunk, or plunge under the water, or whatever you want to say. But they're not stupid guys, and they sit around and they say, you know, we really don't do that. So that's going to create some problems for us if we translate that word the way it ought to be translated. So instead of translating it, they transliterated it and essentially invented a brand new word. Baptize. Sounds an awful lot like baptizo. Baptizo. People say, well, what does it mean to baptize? Well, then you get to define that term because they don't know what it means. So just an interesting piece of history of how we ended up with this word baptize and why we have so so much confusion about it. Why else do we do immersion? A couple more reasons. Baptism stories in the New Testament suggest baptism by immersion. And I'm going to let you look those passages up. Mark chapter 1 talks about John's baptism and Jesus being baptized. Both of them suggest that they go down into the Jordan and then they come up out of the Jordan. And if all you're doing is sprinkling or pouring, there's really no reason to go all the way down into a river and then climb all the way back out of a river. It seems like that's what they're doing. And you see the same thing in Acts chapter 8. Philip and the Ethiopian, here's water. What would prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. Stop the chariot. Let's go down into the water and then let's come up out of the water. So when you read about it, it sounds like That's exactly what they were doing. One last reason is that the meaning of baptism implies immersion. That's how you ought to do it. And I want you to look at Romans chapter 6. This is one of the things I talk about, I try to talk about with everybody who gets baptized here. When we're talking to them about why we do it, how we do it, why we do it, the way we do it, all of those things. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so you've heard some of those words said maybe at a baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And that's where it comes from. It's this idea that baptism is a picture that the old you has died and the new you is alive. And it's really pretty obvious at the risk of being kind of morbid and grotesque. If we take you under the water and hold you there... You die. That's the point. The old you has died, and the new you has now come to life to walk in newness of life. Uh, A few more thoughts on baptism. Baptism is a church ordinance, and it is an initiatory ordinance. It should only be administered one time. It's a church ordinance. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. What I mean by that is we do it together. From time to time, somebody will come and visit with me about baptism, and they'll say, I'm really nervous to be in front of people. Can't we just go home and do it in my bathtub? No. (laughs) Unless you can get all of us in your bathroom. No. We're not doing that. Uh, Sometimes kids will go to camp and kids will make professions of faith at camp, and they'll say, hey, let's have baptisms. Let's go down in the swimming pool and baptize kids. And I'm just telling you, when we send kids to camp, we're not doing that. You come back to your church and do that. It's not something that camps do. It's something that churches do. It's a church ordinance, and it's an initiatory ordinance, meaning you do it once, and doing it marks your beginning as a follower of Jesus, and it marks your entrance into the church. So it's A church ordinance, it happens with your church family, and it's something that marks the beginning of your Christian life and your beginning of your church membership. Last idea is this, obvious. Baptists talk about this a lot. We ought to be baptized to follow the example of Christ and to obey the command of Christ. We're following his example, and we're obeying his command. And I'm going to let you look at Matthew 3 and Matthew 28. Matthew 3 is Jesus being baptized and he talks to John about let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. We could spend a whole week talking about what that means, but at least part of what it means is Jesus is setting an example for us to follow. And then you know Matthew 28, the Great Commission, talks about making disciples and baptizing them. Um, On this issue of baptism, let me just say this. A strange thing happens in a lot of Baptist churches... Where we're so afraid that people will think baptism saves you, we're so afraid that they'll get confused with maybe Catholic teaching that baptism is this sacrament that imparts grace into your life, that we end up talking about baptism and say things like, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. Like, it's you know, it doesn't save you. You don't really have to do it. It's not mandatory. And We're trying to teach something good. We're trying to teach baptism itself doesn't save you. But sometimes what we end up saying is, eh, take it or leave it. It's not that big a deal. And the first Baptists, the original Baptists, would be shocked to hear us say things like that. They thought it was a big enough deal that they baptized people. And those who disagreed with them told them to stop. And they said, no, we're not going to stop. And they said, no, you really need to stop. And they said, we can't stop. We're convinced by Scripture. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to drown you. You want to be dunked, we'll dunk you. And some of the first Baptists, not a, a lot of them, but some of them were drowned because they insisted this is what we see in Scripture. Scripture it was that important to them to get it right and to do it right and to follow what the Scripture said that they were willing to give their life for it. They would never walk around and say, Eh, you know, it's no big deal. It's just kind of this thing we do. Uh, Take it or leave it. You don't have to do it. It's not going to make you go to hell if you don't do it. Of course they wouldn't say that it makes you a Christian, but they would also not say that it's optional. It is important and it did matter to them. Uh, debatable issues about baptism do you dunk them forward or backward what are the words that you say when you, uh, when you dunk somebody do you do it one time or three times uh, you saw the, the Greek Orthodox guy dunking the baby and look they're, they're Greek guys they know what the word baptize means right? they speak Greek it means to dunk so they're dunking the baby and they do it three times in the name of the father in the name of the son in the name of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, that's okay. I don't know that that's crazy other than that they're doing it to a baby. Um, debatable things. When is a child old enough? How old do you have to be? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, there's probably some gray area in there where we can debate and discuss and disagree. But some children are too young and then at some point they get ready. But there's a, some of those things, uh, a lot of those issues we can we can debate and disagree on and try to figure out. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a celebratory meal where Christians remember the death of Jesus and they anticipate his return. It's remembering and it's anticipating. Some of you may have heard or been in churches that use the term the Eucharist for the Lord's Supper. That's a a fine term to use, that's just a word that means thanksgiving. We take the Lord's Supper and we do it with thanksgiving, of course. We're thankful for what Jesus has done. Sometimes people call it communion. Um, I grew up in a church that did not call it communion, so it's hard for me to make that word come out of my mouth because I never heard it for 20 years of my life. But some people call it communion, and that's a fine word. All it's talking about is the fellowship we have with God and the fellowship we have with other when we take it. Uh, the word means fellowship. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, the Lord's Supper is called the Lord's Table. Sometimes it's called breaking of bread. So there's a number of different terms you can use here. What do you need to know about it? Here's a few thoughts. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, quote-unquote Last Supper, which took place during a Passover celebration. And I just want to read Matthew 26. I know we read it on the Sundays where we take the Lord's Supper, and you're familiar with this, and we already read Exodus 12 about the Passover. But I just want you to read this passage and think about the weightiness of what Jesus is doing when he changes the Passover, right? For hundreds of years, God's people have been celebrating this Passover, this feast, this remembrance of God bringing his people out of Egypt. And God says in the book of Exodus, you do it forever, you do it forever, you do it forever, you do it forever. This is what you do. And then here's Jesus on the night before he's crucified, and he sits down with his buddies in the room, And they're celebrating the Passover, and there's a formula you go through, and you eat certain foods, and you do certain things. And just like right in the middle of it, Jesus just starts changing things. Like I don't get to do that. Peter didn't get to do that. You don't get to do that. But Jesus, just midway through, he just begins to redefine it and change it. And so... Look what we read in Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Okay, The disciples are not saying, It's time for the Last Supper. It's time for the Lord's Supper. They're saying, Where are we going to have the Passover? He said, Go into a city, into the city, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover. At your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It's in there three times Passover, Passover, Passover. Verse 20 When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. That's just changing the whole celebration right in the middle. You're not going to find that in Exodus. And Jesus is changing it. He took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the idea here is that they're celebrating the Passover, and Jesus redefines it. He changes the tradition into this new tradition, which we call the Lord's Supper. Next, the Lord's Supper was celebrated by the first Christians. You read that in the book of Acts. You read it in some of the letters that Paul wrote. From the very beginning, the church celebrates this ordinance. They're taking bread together, breaking bread together. They're remembering the Lord. They're at the Lord's table. They're doing all of these things just like Jesus commanded them to do. See, it's a matter of faith and loyalty, not sinless perfection on our part. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Too many times we have the idea that before we take the Lord's Supper, we need to have confessed all our sins, make sure we don't leave any out, and we have to have been pretty good recently. Like if you really blew it with your spouse on the way to church, sometimes people are like, eh, I probably better not take it today. Or if you were really rotten to a coworker the last week, some people will be like, eh, you know, I just blew it this week. I, I shouldn't participate. Sometimes we have in our head, we have to be good enough. We have to be worthy enough. We have to get all of our sins confessed and listed out to God. That's really not the point of the Lord's Supper at all. There is this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, that talks about, just start reading in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You say, well, I don't want to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Certainly don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. You read in verse 28, let a person examine himself and eat the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If that doesn't sound serious enough to you, maybe the next verse will. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You've had people die in Corinth. and The reason they died is they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner without examining themselves. Sometimes we take that and we back up and we say, Ah. I guess that means you got to be a really good person to participate. That's not at all what Paul is talking about when he says examine yourself. Examine yourself doesn't mean go back and catalog all your sins and see if you've been good enough. Examine yourself means confess your sin as sin and make sure that you're trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Don't rush into this as if you've earned it or you deserve it, but acknowledge your sin... And admit that you need Jesus to be your Savior. And I listed 1 Corinthians 16, 21. Just flip over and look at this verse. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 21. And really, verse 22 is what I wanted. But verse 21 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Verse 22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's the heart of the issue. Do you have love for Jesus Christ? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? It's not you're going to be accursed if you've messed up this week. You're going to be accursed if you don't confess every single sin to God before you take the Lord's Supper. But the issue is, does this person, do you, do I, have love for the Lord? And that's the issue that we're looking at when we talk about examining ourselves. So it's a matter of faith and loyalty, not sinless perfection. D, this is important celebration involves the past the present and the future all three aspects are involved when we take the lord's supper we are looking back and remembering so you can think about uh, maybe the church you grew up in Uh, there was a time when most churches had a table up at the front that they would use for communion or the lord's supper and most of those tables on the front said do this in remembrance of me And so you look at that and you say, okay, when we put the stuff on that table and do the thing and we pass it out, we are remembering. It means you're looking back to the past. But it's also a present reality, right? It's this ongoing thing. We continue to do it. We do baptism once, and that's it in your life. But we take the Lord's Supper over and over and over and over again as this reminder that I'm continuing to trust in Jesus. I'm continuing to look to Him for forgiveness and for salvation. And there's a future aspect to it, which I think is the most exciting. Look at Revelation chapter 19 just to see the culmination of where the Lord's Supper is headed. So just like Jesus sat down and said, hey, this Passover thing, we're changing it. It's something new now. There's a day coming where he's going to take this Lord's Supper and he's going to change it again. He's going to say, it's something new now, right? Right? And you read about that in Revelation 19. Look at, we'll just start in verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we're talking about a marriage. It's going to be between Jesus and his church. The bride and the lamb. It's going to be this marriage. What's the best part of any decent wedding? It's certainly not the sermon. And it's certainly not sitting in the sanctuary. And it's certainly not waiting for them to get to the reception. It's when you actually get to eat. Right? That's the best part. It's not watching all the goobers try to dance and all the other crazy stuff. It's the food. And it's coming. Verse 9. The angel said to me, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation is saying, In the end, there's going to be this marriage between Jesus and his church. And after the ceremony, we're going to eat. And Jesus himself talked about this in the Gospels, right? When you go back and you read Jesus at that Last Supper, instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, I'm not going to eat of this or drink of this again until when? Till I do it in my kingdom. It's pointing forward. And there's a, a parable Jesus tells where he talks about his return. And he says, look, in the end, when I return... I'm going to serve a meal to my people and we're going to sit down and we're going to eat together. And he's talking about this meal in Revelation 19. So past, present, and future. Um, History on the Lord's Supper. My favorite story about the Lord's Supper happened in the year 1054. Couldn't find any good pictures of this, so I don't have a picture to show you. But in 1054, there was this growing rift in the... Back then, they would have just called it the church, okay? There was no denomination, so there's this growing rift in the church, and the rift is between the east and the west, and they're just starting to separate from each other. So the east would be like the orthodox guys. You saw them on the video, dunking the babies. Uh, The west would be the Roman Catholic guys, and they're just disagreeing. They're not getting along. There's a lot of issues. Uh, They can't agree on what day to celebrate Easter on, and they're fighting about that, And they're arguing about what you should wear when you're doing the Mass and all. I mean, they're just arguing about stupid stuff. And one of the things they're arguing about is, should you use leavened or unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper? And they're arguing and arguing and arguing. And the guys in the East say you should use leavened. And the guys in the West say you should... You should use unleavened, and they can't agree. So in 1054, they're celebrating a mass, and these eastern guys come in. They march in in the middle of this mass. They slap this paper down on the table, and the the paper they slap down on the table says, We excommunicate you. All us guys in the east, we're kicking you guys in the west out of the church. And the guys in the west, what do you think they did? Real quick, they got a piece of paper and said, No, we're kicking you out of the church. And they both excommunicated each other and went their separate ways. And one, this for real, real history. One of the big issues they were arguing about is what kind of bread should you use in the Lord's Supper? So you can go east or west. I don't care what kind of bread you use. But use some bread in the Lord's Supper. People have argued about transubstantiation. The Catholics teach that in the Mass, when the magical words... They don't say magical words. That's not fair. When the right words are said... The priest says the words over the elements, and they actually become the body and the blood, which is why they're so careful not to drop any crumbs. They're so careful not to lose any drops. They wipe the cup very carefully, and the scholastic and the medieval theologians would talk about, well, what if we drop a piece of the bread and a mouse eats it, or you spill blood on the floor, or what happens? And they got so concerned with the cup at one point in church history. They were so concerned that you common people would drop the cup that they really said, you don't get the cup anymore. You can have the bread, but you, you don't get the cup. And really the root foundation reason was, you might drop Jesus' blood all over the floor. And that would not be right. So the priests are going to get bread and juice, or bread and wine, and you're going to get bread, and we're going to call it good, and nobody's going to drop, drop the blood of Jesus. And that's rooted in this idea that they say the words, and it actually changes. And the reformers had different views on it. Luther and Calvin used to argue and had some really funny arguments about it, but they all agreed, all of the reformers agreed, that this idea of transubstantiation, where we are re-sacrificing Jesus, the elements actually become his body and his blood, and the mass is this re-dying of Jesus. Every time it's offered, they said, we don't believe that, that stuff's nonsense. Um, You can debate about whether you are supposed to use Uh, leavened or unleavened, we've talked about that. You can debate about whether you should use wine or if grape juice is okay. I've seen posts lately about whether you should use gluten-free or not gluten-free crackers in the Lord's Supper. Plenty of things to debate. Um, We don't have time to talk about all these. One issue we could talk about is who can participate. Some churches practice closed communion. That means only members of Our church could take the Lord's Supper at our church. No one else is invited. That's closed. Some churches would say we practice close communion. That means people who have been baptized, as we understand baptism, can take the Lord's Supper. And some would practice open communion, meaning anybody who says they love Jesus can take communion with us. And there's lots of good Baptists who disagree about that, and we can argue about it later if you want to do that. Why does it matter? Let me give you a few reasons, and we'll wrap up. There are many churches that practice baptism in an unbiblical way. It is important to understand what the scriptures say about baptism. I do not think our paedo-baptist friends are right to baptize babies. Paedo, coming from the Greek word for child or infant. Baptism, baptizo, baptizing babies, paedo-baptist. I don't think that's right. And I don't think there's a biblical leg to stand on. Um, Lots of churches that would not ever in a million years baptize an infant are more than happy to baptize a four-year-old who says, I love Jesus. Like, we're going to have VBS this summer. You realize all the four-year-olds, if we ask them to raise their hands, will say, I love Jesus. And there's an awful lot of churches that are more than happy to say, well, then you need to be baptized. And those four-year-olds don't understand anything about anything. That's really not that different from infant baptism. If you think about it, there's somebody who doesn't have faith, somebody who doesn't understand the gospel, and you're baptizing them. It's not, it's not the biblical picture. I've heard of churches. You're going to think I'm making this up. I promise you I wouldn't lie to you on a Wednesday night. Maybe the Sunday morning group, I would stretch the truth, but not you guys, Wednesday night. I've heard of a church in the state of Texas that bought an old school bus, gutted it, fitted it with a hot tub that they filled with water, Drove it around playing loud music in a neighborhood in the summer when it was really hot, giving out candy, attracting kids, saying, Jesus loves you. Who wants to get baptized? Well, I don't know about baptism, but I want a sucker and it's blazing hot, so I want to get in that water. And they just line them up and baptize them. And then they turn around to our uh, agency or whatever agency they're a part of. It was our agency. The story I heard, uh, Southern Baptist, and they said, hey, we had 5,000 baptisms this year. Okay. Um, churches will baptize people over and over and over and over and over again. Um, in Oklahoma, we had kids from all sorts of denominations, a very small town, sort of all the kids in town would come to youth camp with us, so you kind of got a hodgepodge of kids. you got the Catholic kids and the Methodist kids and the Assemblies of God. you got all the kids. And some of those kids wanted to get baptized every single year. And their thought was, well, you know, I kind of did some dumb things this last year, and Jesus is a little bit mad at me, so I need to get baptized to fix that, and I need to do it every single year. And of course, we weren't going to do that, but they would go home to their churches, and some of those churches were happy to do it. Oh, we'll baptize you again. And it just becomes this meaningless thing. So there's a lot of churches that don't do it right. And number two, there are many churches that practice the Lord's Supper in an unbiblical way. This idea that so many people have where they say, I can't participate in the Lord's Supper because I'm not a very good Christian. That's an unbiblical idea. Where did they get that? Well, some pastor taught it to them. Some Sunday school teacher taught it to them. Some elder or some deacon told them, you shouldn't participate if you've been a rotten person this last week. That's not the point. We're all rotten people. That's part of what you're admitting when you take it. Like picking the elements out of the tray is you saying, I am a rotten person and I need Jesus to save me. Um, Sometimes churches turn it into like a funeral. Like, we're just going to mourn and we're going to grieve and crank the organ music up. I love organ music, so that's not a knock on organ, but you know what I'm saying. Just crank it up, make it mournful, make it sad. Everything I said in this lesson, I use the word celebration. It is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross It's not a mournful thing. He's not asking you to feel sorry for him. He's not asking you to sit there and think, oh, those nails must have really hurt. Oh, those thorns must have been really bad. That's not the point. The point is, are you admitting your sin and trusting in Jesus? Uh, Some churches, they just do it with subgroups of their church. Maybe a Sunday school class will do it. Maybe the youth group will do it while they're on a trip. Maybe a mission team will go overseas and do it on the mission team. And that misses the point. It's a church ordinance. We do it when we're together. Does that mean everyone whose name is on the roll has to be here? Of course not. But it means we do it when all of the church has opportunity to be here and to participate. Number three, you have to use wisdom when you do the baptism, when you do the Lord's Supper. Because there's a lot of things that the Bible just doesn't answer. Things that maybe we would like to know that the Bible just doesn't tell us. Things like, who can do a baptism? Does it have to be a pastor? Can it be a parent? Can it be a deacon? Can it be a Sunday school teacher? Can it be a friend? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us who can do it. How old does a child have to be? When should you baptize a new convert? Should you do it immediately? Or should you wait and see if their faith is genuine? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly how to figure that out. Uh, how often should you take the Lord's Supper? Who can help pass the Lord's Supper uh, elements out? Do you pass it out from the front or the back? or how do you, Look, there's a lot of things the Bible just doesn't tell us, and you use wisdom in those things. I've mentioned this already. These are church ordinances, meaning we do them together. We do them together. We celebrate baptisms together. We take the Lord's Supper together. And the last idea is pretty simple. Believers ought to take the ordinances seriously doesn't mean you ought to be scared of them it doesn't mean you ought to be fearful of them but it does mean you should take them seriously and we read Paul's words to the Corinthians when he said don't take it in an unworthy manner you need to examine yourself you need to see where your heart is at do you have love for the Lord in your heart when you participate in these things and uh, they are important and they're worth us looking to the scriptures to try to figure out what they have to say so let me mention a few books and then we'll spend some time praying together. I've mentioned this book almost every week. I haven't showed it to you every week, but it's a book called Systematic Theology, and it's a thick book, and that intimidates some people, but this is one of the most helpful books that I've ever bought. I go back and I read it all the time. I look things up. I go for verses. I go for ideas. I go for uh, reminders, and it's a systematic theology. So he covers all the topics and then some that we've covered on Wednesday nights, And it's super, super helpful. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Um, This is a book that our staff and our elders just read. It's called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. It's a book mostly about spiritual disciplines, but it also talks about how we practice spiritual disciplines as a church family, which is one of the things I really liked about it. And so our staff and our elders just read it, and it's a great book. He talks about baptism and the Lord's Supper in that book. And then if you just are a little bit nerdy like me and you like to study Baptist things and why are we Baptist and not Presbyterian and what's the difference and why does it matter, uh, I listed a couple of books here, one called The Baptist Way and one called Believer's Baptism that are both really great books about some of the things that make us distinctive as Baptists. So there's a few books if you're interested in reading about the ordinances.